We get to start a new series today, and the title of the series is Gospel Clarity. Gospel Clarity. Uh, What is the gospel? Why do we need it? What is the gospel? Why do we need it? And um, you, you might wonder, why are you doing a series, I mean, on just like the gospel? Well, because it's the most important message in the entire world, which means it's the most important message for us, and it's the most important message for everyone else. And, and so we want to talk about what it is. Um, and since our missional priorities, whether we're talking gospel formation, gospel culture, uh, gospel mercy, gospel uh, outreach, or gospel unity, those missional priorities are all begin with what word? Gospel. Well, if we don't know what the gospel is, then how do we then connect it to any of those things? It's, it's, those all have to grow out of the gospel. And, um, and I, in, in my experience, I find that many Christians really actually lack clarity on the gospel. And uh, so we want to make sure we get clarity on the gospel. And so we're going to begin in Isaiah 52, verse 7 this morning. And you might think that's an odd place to go if you're going to talk about the gospel. Why would you go to the Old Testament? As we'll see in a little while, that may be the most gospel-saturated verse in the whole Bible, and we'll explain why I say that uh, in a bit. But uh, Isaiah 52, verse 7, and if you would uh, join me in reading God's Word. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace and who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, Your God reigns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach this ever so important message, this announcement, this proclamation called the gospel, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and transform us by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Russell Moore, in one of his newsletters last spring, said the following. He said, if we have misplaced hopes, we will have misplaced fears. When we seek the wrong kingdom, we will fear the wrong apocalypse. In other words, if we don't get our hope right, the gospel hope, then we will not only seek the wrong things, we will fear the wrong things. We must have the right hope. To get our hope right, we must get the gospel right because our hope grows out of the gospel. Christians today seem to be just as filled with fear as the world, if not more at times. I'm only speaking anecdotally from my own experience and observation. And maybe that's because I'm, well, mostly around Christian conversation more than I am around the world's conversation. So maybe I'd see it differently if that weren't the case. I don't know, though. Christians fear being replaced in the workplace, being overrun by immigrants. They fear the wrong election results. They fear the radical shift in how we view human identity, not to mention aging, having a job that you don't love, and so much more, just like everyone else seems to. And how does that square with what Jesus said when he said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body, soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. Seems like none of those things I listed previously should fall into the realm of fear for us. To put it another way, whatever the Christian hope is, it can't just work in the United States but also must work in communist China or tyrannically led Myanmar. It is offered to all and to be demonstrated to all regardless of their earthly citizenship. What does Russell Moore mean when he speaks of fearing the wrong apocalypse? It's that, you know, the world is coming to an end because, you know, We hear some news about what's going on in the world. It has to be the end times. Really? Because of what? Well, because of something we fear that is happening that we can't believe that the world could continue with that happening. 
but it only reveals we have a very naive view of history. I'm currently about finished with a book on the early, I say early, you know, relative from here, from our vantage point, early history of what became England and how that, you know, came about and all the, the wars. And you think, anyone thinks we got it bad today, ain't, that, we ain't got nothing on that. Nothing. The wrong, fearing the wrong apocalypse is that sort of chicken littles, uh, the sky is falling kind of fear. Whether it's the government changing the cultural definition of marriage or, and, and, and this one, this one I'm about to say is the number one fear in America in 2023, according to some survey, um, corruption in the government. Or how about inflation, the economy, and the na- or the national debt? Together, those make up number two fear in 2023. Now, I'm not suggesting that these aren't important things, but they are not fears that should drive us as a believer. For many, the apocalypse, that disaster that consumes them, becomes a lower-paying job or being passed over for, over for a promotion for a less qualified person. Or maybe it's neighbors who don't speak English, or worse yet, who have placed their identity not in being human, but in their sexual desires. When we seek the right kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, we trust that just like the sparrows, nothing can happen to us outside our Father's care. And that our identity is not found in our career any more than in our sexual desires. And that neighbors who don't speak English is an international mission opportunity. And that no matter what our neighbors root their identity in, we root their identity in the fact that they are humans made in the image of God. Think about your week, your life. What are the fears that concern you most? Are they proper fears or misplaced fears? What are the hopes that drive you? Are they gospel hopes or misplaced hopes? To to get our hope right and our fears right, our apocalypse right, if you will, we must get the gospel right. So we're beginning this series, which I'm calling Gospel Clarity. What is the gospel? Why do we need it? And we're going to explore this question under three headings. What is the gospel? Why is it good? And gospel ambassadors of reconciliation. And no, I could not figure out how to make the third one fit the pattern of the first two. So it is what it is. It's right there. We'll just call it application, if you will. So what is the gospel? Why is it good? And gospel ambassadors of reconciliation. Um, And let's begin under that first heading. What is the gospel? I want to read the text one more time, but this time I'm going to kind of help color between the lines a little as I read. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who euangelizo, who evangelize, who gospelize. You see, the word used there, proclaiming good news, is the verbal form, euangelizo, of the noun euangelion, which is translated gospel, which is why I really like the the translation gospelize, so that we make that connection. It's this amazing proclamation of some fantastic news, which we'll talk about here in a moment. So, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who gospelize, who evangelize who gospelize peace. There it is again, euangelizo, participle form in both cases, who gospelize good tidings. Three times we've had it there, haven't we? Who proclaim Yeshua, salvation. But you might recognize that, especially the Joshua's in the room. <laughs> that Right? The, the name of Jesus as well, God's salvation. Who proclaim Yeshua, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Well, maybe now you see why I say this might be the most gospelized verse, gospel-saturated verse, gospel-infused verse in the Bible. And, And what is it about? 
this gospel. It's about the reign of God over his people. The only actual words put on the lips of the one doing this gospelizing, the only quotation we have of what it is they say as they're gospelizing, as they're gospelizing peace and good tidings, the only actual words that we have as they proclaim salvation is, your God reigns. Isaiah 52 as a chapter, if you back up to the beginning of the chapter, it begins talking about Israel's history of being captive to foreign rulers. Okay. At first, in verse 4 it says, my people went down to Egypt to live. They were, what, subservient to Pharaoh. They were in bondage and oppressed by Pharaoh. Lately, Assyria has oppressed them. So the northern kingdoms are being oppressed by Assyria and then brought into um, captivity by Assyria. Other kings are ruling over them. Why? Because their own kings, their own rulers were just as evil and corrupt as the other kings. They had rejected God as king all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And it has led to this. Rejecting God as king has led to the bondage that they are in. And then we read this in verse 5. And now what do I have here, declares the Lord? For my people have taken, uh, been taken away for nothing. And those, listen to these words, those who rule them mock. Those who rule them, declares the Lord, they mock. All day, uh, and all day long my name is constantly blasphemed. So this good news that's being announced is about a change in who rules over them. Those who rule them, Assyria, Egypt, whatever other oppressors they may be, are mocking them. But what's the good news? Your God reigns. There's a change of rule. Okay? That is good news. That God reigns and not those who would oppress us. And keep us in bondage. In other words, we could say that the gospel is the announcement that God is king. Now we see this in Psalm 97, which is a gospel-centric psalm. The Lord, all capital letters, L-O-R-D, Yahweh is what that's translating. Yahweh reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Now, it's important to notice first, we are those distant shores. Like when, when, when it says, let the distant shores rejoice, don't think of, okay, what are the distant shores as if the starting point is right here? You have to go to where that psalm was written, likely Jerusalem, give or take. I mean, but we're going to call it Jerusalem, Israel at a minimum. What were the distant shores? Well, I would guess St. Petersburg, Florida would be about as distant as, it was actually more distant than they could even conceive at that point. So we would be super distant, okay? And so this morning we gather and do what? We fulfill this verse. We rejoice in the Lord. Isn't that glorious? Did you ever think of coming together to worship with God's people and rejoicing in, in, in the gospel as fulfilling scripture every time you do it? We were the people in darkness that have now seen light by the grace of God. And why is the earth glad? Why are these shores rejoicing? Because this is gloriously good news. So, sometime back, a few years ago, um, in response to a book that was pointing out the very things that I'm talking about today, uh, another author, in response to that book, well known for his book that sets out to define the gospel, wrote an article titled, Jesus is King, quote-unquote, Jesus is King, is not good news. If I said on which website that was published, at least half of you would know the name of the website and would be utterly shocked that they would publish something that said Jesus is King is not good news, given that the article was not saying that that's a false statement. The article was trying to support that that's a true statement, that that is not good news. And it's a Christian website with gospel in the name of the organization. So, well, after receiving so much pushback because of the obvious unbiblical nature of the statement, the title of the article was changed. 
And I'm glad for that. The content wasn't, however. Listen, the fall of humanity into the mess that we are in because humanity rejected God as king, that's, that's how it happened. The, the mess we're in is because of human rejection of God as king. The downfall of Israel that we read about in Isaiah 52, I mean, that, that's the context of Isaiah 52. After God had reestablished his kingship by covenant with Abraham and then with the people of Israel, that downfall was because Israel rejected God as king. So, Jesus is king, or our God reigns, or your God reigns, speaking to Israel, uh, or the kingdom of heaven is at hand, to put it in Matthew's or Mark's kinds of terminology. Not only is it good news, it's the best news ever. The gospel is not just any good news. Uh, A common... I'm going to call it a misconception regarding the meaning of the word gospel is that, uh, is what I'll call it the gospel means good news misconception. We've all heard it, I've said it at least a hundred times, that, well, the gospel, it means good news. Not exactly. Okay, sort of. Not exactly. And, and the reason I say that is we're confusing etymology with meaning. Etymology is the study of how a word is formed or its history and how we got there. How did this word come about? Well, we took a prefix, you, means good, and we took a noun, angelion, message. We stuck them together, and we have good message or good news, we would say. Not static news, but proclaimed news, news being proclaimed, good news. And that's true as far as it goes. The catch is that isn't the meaning, that's the etymology. And it's an important distinction because the word euangelion had a technical meaning at the time of the first century. And we need to understand what it meant to them when they saw the word because the New Testament very clearly is using that technical meaning. And it is very helpful when we recognize it because it helps us understand the gospel more clearly. Um, I'll give you an example, though, to help you understand this. Everybody in the room know what a eulogy is? But where do we hear eulogies? Funerals. Well, the word eulogy is it's really just a transliteration of a Greek word. And it is you, same prefix that we have in gospel, E-U, you. And you ever heard of the word logos? Words? So eulogy is, well, they're good words. But if somebody says, hey, can you give me a eulogy? Yeah, how about zesty? I think that's a great word. Um, Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, isn't that a wonderful word? Well, we all know that has nothing to do with a eulogy, right? A eulogy is speaking about someone who has died and about the good things in their life and the things that were meaningful to you and so forth. They're helpful in the grieving process. So etymology, good words, does not give meaning. It's not the same thing. They're related. They're not unrelated. Do you understand what I'm saying? But there's a distinct difference between etymology and meaning. In the first century, a short definition of euangelion, the word we translate gospel, would be the proclamation of a new ruler who will bring about a changed way of life or society. That's a short definition. The proclamation of a new ruler who will bring about a changed way of life or society. Slightly longer, a gospel was the proclamation of a ruler's birth, coming of age, or enthronement, including his rise to power, speeches, decrees, and acts, which bring fulfillment to the longings of the world for justice and peace. Okay? A longer definition of what a gospel. So we had the gospel of Augustus Caesar, which brought about... The, the Roman, uh, Pax Romana, Roman peace, which was attributed to him by the Roman government, if you will. And it's that last part, which brings fulfillment to the longings of the world for justice and peace, that part, that made it good. The claim was that a given ruler, whether Caesar Augustus or someone else, brought fulfillment to the longings of the world for justice and peace. Now, does anyone in the world today long for justice and peace? 
Or is this just totally passe and irrelevant? I'd say that might be the heart cry of many people in the world today. Many people in the world today. And sadly, far too often, I find Christians are trying to squelch that discussion when we should be answering that discussion. We have the one thing that actually speaks to that. We have the one thing that can fulfill that. Isn't that good news? The church shouldn't run from conversations about justice and peace because of misplaced fears, but must jump right in the middle of it. We have the only gospel that will satisfy. The Republican gospel won't satisfy. The Democrat gospel won't bring it about. The Marxist gospel can't satisfy. The capitalist gospel won't do. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the most relevant thing in the face of the world's fears and longings today. Whether the young, the disenfranchised, the declining middle class, the educated or the uneducated alike, the gospel is the most relevant message. And it's vitally important that we understand it. We've defined what a gospel is in the first century. Now let's apply it to the gospel. So we've talked about a gospel. could apply to any ruler. Let's talk about the gospel and get more specific. The gospel is the proclamation of Jesus' birth, life, and enthronement, including how he ascended to power, which was the cross and the resurrection. His speeches and decrees, for example, the Sermon on the Mount. His acts, which bring fulfillment to the longings of the world for justice and peace, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, bearing our sins, cleansing us, transforming us. And it makes sense of why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are called what? Gospels. You see, when you understand that definition of gospel, suddenly it makes perfect sense that those are called gospels. Because that's exactly what they are. And that's exactly how the New Testament writers use the term gospel. Now, what happens is, you know, a lot of scholars believe that Mark's gospel, as an example, is um, uh, Peter's, what Peter preached as the gospel, put down by the pen of John Mark. Okay, and uh, Luke, some would say, is, uh, and I would tend to lean this way, is, is Paul's teaching of the gospel, and it's pinned by Luke. Now, however it works out, I don't know, but the point is, when we read in the book of Acts, or we read other places that they preached the gospel, well, what they did was they preached those accounts of Jesus' life. Now, they may have done it longer or shorter in each given case, but that is what they did but we just read gospel and we fill it in with whatever we've imagined it means and we think that's what they're preaching like maybe it's these four points that we need to go over or whatever but it's not the story of Jesus life you know origins etc and and how he came to power and how he rules now at the right hand of God a more succinct way maybe of of putting the gospel the gospel in 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 defining it as the gospel is the proclamation that the rule of God has been restored to the world in Jesus the King. It includes the story of how it came about through his coming, life, teaching, death, resurrection, and ascension. That's a mouthful. But how could one put it in just a few words? Well, we have some options. Maybe the shortest summary of the gospel that we have in Scripture is right in our text. Your God reigns. Now, we have to qualify that because your, who's the your? It's not just, I can't just walk up to anybody and say your God reigns, that's the gospel, because whatever their God is may not reign. It certainly might not be good news if he did. But God is speaking to Israel. This is Yahweh speaking to Israel in Isaiah. So Yahweh reigns. Our God reigns, as it's often put. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ reigns. So that would be a succinct way of stating the gospel. Three words, your God reigns, with an understanding or a footnote to your, if you will. In the book of Acts, we have almost equally short summaries of the gospel in a handful of places uh, and, and, and restated throughout the New Testament. And we'll look at these as the series goes on in different ones. But just some quick ones from the book of Acts. Acts 2, 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord 
and Messiah, or some translations, Christ. The, the word Messiah is from the Hebrew anointed. The word Christ from the Greek anointed. It's the same meaning. Both Lord and Messiah, or Lord and Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is a title that essentially means God's promised good king. God's promised good king. So Jesus has been made both Lord and God's promised good king. Lord was a title that Caesar claimed. But the gospel says that Jesus is Lord. Okay. Acts 5.42, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus, that the promised good king is Jesus. They were preaching the gospel. Acts 8, uh, verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. God's promised good king. That's what they're proclaiming. And of course, who did he tell them that he was? Jesus. And then in, in, in verse 12 of Acts 8, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, in other words, of Jesus, God's promised good king, Jesus the Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And that leads to the second thing we want to talk about today. Why is this good news? Uh, we've, we've spoken to that already, but I want to expand on why this is good news. And the short answer to that question, at least the first short answer, is because he is a good king. <laughs> Indeed, they don't get any better. Jesus is king is good news because there is no better king. No earthly king could possibly compare. But that was the crux of the matter in the Garden of Eden, was it not? Whether or not God was a good king. In the Garden, the question, the, the root of the temptation was some doubt planted by the serpent that God was a good king. We read in chapter 3 of Genesis, beginning in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now notice, the immediate attack is on God's goodness. God made all this, and you can't have any of it. Of course, that wasn't at all what God had said, was it? In fact, <laughs> what God had said was that you can eat from every tree. Everything is yours. I, I'll, tell you, I'll reserve one for myself, just one. I mean, he could not have made the test any easier. This is as easy as it could possibly be. Okay. The woman said to the serpent, We may not eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. Okay, now, now the temptation is what God's withholding. Another attack on his goodness. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So in other words, God's holding out. God's withholding some good thing from you. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. She doubted God's goodness and began to believe in the goodness of breaking his command. Is God good or is God withholding? That was the fundamental question. Now, reading those three chapters, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, today we are likely to miss the fact that it is speaking about God as a king to begin with. We don't see the word king there, to be sure. In the ancient world, however, their origin stories not only described how the world as we know it came about, but it always ended with the temple or the palace upon which that God would then rest, and that particular God had, had built in the process, and some earthly ruler who ruled under, on his behalf, who was king, God's son, they would call him more often than not, a sort of divine human ruler that gave legitimacy to those earthly governments. In those stories, humans were made slaves to those gods and kings. 
That's why they were created. The gods needed somebody to feed them. Go collect the food. Go make the food. Bring it to me. Because you had a helpless God, if you will. But in the biblical story, we see something similar but radically different. The same form of communication, the same concepts, but completely turned on their head. God's rule uh, did not come through a power struggle with some of the other gods, but instead everything that includes everything that people attributed to being gods themselves because they're such powerful forces, but everything was created by God. He made it all without constraint or obligation. He didn't create people to feed him. He, he made a garden to feed people. He was the servant king, unlike those kings. The garden paradise was reminiscent of the garden of kings. So he came to rest, language that's used in the ancient world for being enthroned. He came to rest on the seventh day. He dwelt among his people. He's enthroned among his people as what? As king. Okay. He's the one who gives the command. But what is this king's order? Eat from everything. Just one. One tree. Okay. He was a good king. His rule was simple enough. But to reject that simple rule was to reject God as king. From that vantage point, that the gospel is the announcement of the reign of God makes perfect sense. If the fall was the rejection of God as king... The gospel, the greatest news in the world, is the restoration of the message that God is king and of the truth that God is king. Of course, forgiveness is essential because we've lived in rebellion against him as a people and as individuals. Forgiveness is essential because the gospel is about God's restoration as king in Jesus over us. Jesus is king is good news Yes, because he's a good king, but also because we make lousy kings. We are terrible kings. Whether of ourselves or others, we're just terrible kings. We've tried to be our own kings, our own rulers, and we've bungled the whole thing. Which is why one author puts it that repentance is the first word of the gospel. We see that. Repentance, it's tied to the announcement of a kingdom coming. It's tied to the gospel. Notice in Matthew 3. In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, and saying, Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In other words, there's a gospel. The kingdom of heaven has come near. There's an announcement being made about this kingdom. Repent for the gospel. Matthew 4.17. From that time on Jesus began to preach. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Since the fall of man, humanity, is a rejecting of God as king, ultimately sin is a rejection of God as king. The first human step in response to the gospel is repentance. And to be clear about what repentance is, repentance, though it may be accompanied by a sense of sorrow, is not feeling bad about our sin. It's not even regretting our sin, though we should... Both feel bad about it and regret it. I mean, sure. But that's not what repentance is. Repentance is when we stop rejecting God as king. We stop rejecting God as king. That's repentance. Repentance is a change not only of how we think, but also of how we live. We come under God's rulership. It's as if John and Jesus in those early verses of Matthew were saying, change how you think and live for a new king is arriving momentarily. You'll be better off when he shows up if you're doing what he said. It also explains why immediately after saying, Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near, Jesus went around preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And then we immediately have an example, which is the Sermon on the Mount, which describes that call to change how we think and live. If, if there ever were a, a sermon that speaks to the issue of changing how we think and live, it's the Sermon on the Mount. We capture <clears throat> this sense of both repentance and the fact that we make lousy kings and 
In in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, you may be familiar with these verses. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to Him, and He will make your paths straight. See, we've messed our paths up. We need to submit to Him. We need to take the crown off our own head and put it back on the Lord's head, so to speak. The Christian life is, is one of continually recognizing ways that we have kept the crown on our own heads instead of Christ and repenting and putting it back where it belongs, which is on Him. Now we'll talk later in this series about how we do share in His glory, but we have to keep these things distinct and, and, and clear. We do. There's an amazing role that we've been given as humans to share in His glory as King. So in some sense, we, we get a small crown back on our head, but it's a different kind of thing than us being our own king. So we'll address that. Be aware of that. But we, we, in our Christian walk, we, we, we are continually shown ways by the Spirit of the Lord in the grace of God, in the, in, the, in the gentleness and kindness of the Lord, of how we have maintained our own kingship instead of giving Him lordship over our lives. And so we change that. That's repentance. And He forgives us every time. Isaiah tells us, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Which is why we must pray, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to pray and live so as to lessen the gap between His thoughts and our thoughts, His ways and our ways. Bring those closer together by the power of God's Spirit within us. Remember last week, that that slide at the end that we we showed, the already, not yet. It's a dynamic scenario. The already is not just a static line and then one day we get more. But it's the already is dynamically changing based on how we call on God, how He answers by giving us His Spirit to transform us and to change things in this world so that they are more on earth as it is in heaven. The more we are conformed to His ways, the more we are filled with His Spirit, the more we live under His kingship, the more, then, that the new Jerusalem, the capital city of the kingdom, comes down out of heaven to earth. All of this helps us understand how, and this is our third and final heading, how we are gospel ambassadors of reconciliation. The gospel transforms us into ambassadors of reconciliation. I I thought about titling this third point, The Gospel Shines Your Shoes. I I love a good shoe shine. You know, I just got a pair of dress shoes. I want them shine. The problem is every time I pass a shoe shine, I rarely have my dress shoes on. I have tennis shoes or something on. It's like, well, you can't polish those. Since, as our text puts it, the feet of those who bring good news are beautiful, and since those who respond to the gospel are in some way made part of that news, that news spreading process, that gospelizing, well, in a manner of speaking, we get a shoe shine. But in truth, the beautiful feet of Isaiah 52 are not shoes at all. They're bare feet. Sandaled feet that had walked dusty, dirty roads all day, but have been washed. I can't help but wonder if there is symbolism in Jesus washing the disciples' feet, even as He is about to send them as ambassadors of reconciliation to the world, He's giving them beautiful feet. That's what Paul calls these ones who gospelize. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in the Christ, the the King, the Messiah, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who has reconciled us to Himself through the Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Notice how frequently Christ is brought up. God's promised good King. And He has reconciled us through the Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in the Christ, in the God's promised good king, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, 
as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So, whose ambassadors are we? The king's, Christ's ambassadors, ambassadors of Christ, the promised good king. And what is this message of reconciliation? That, that God was the promised king who has now come reconciling the world to himself. God, was, God is in the process of making enemies friends again. And he's making friends of all peoples on earth. Now here's an interesting little detail that we often miss reading this. I often miss it reading this, but it is there if we stop and ask ourselves the right questions. And that's that Paul is writing this and speaking it, if you will, to the church in Corinth. It was, in the first case, Paul and his team who were the ambassadors of reconciliation. God has made us ambassadors. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. The us was Paul and his team. The you was the church in Corinth. Now follow me here. He was telling them that they were to become the righteousness of God because of Christ's work. And by implication, of course, once reconciled, the Corinthians are also brought into this role of ambassadors. Maybe not in the same way Paul and his team were, but as the church. Because the Great Commission is given to the church. But notice this. This statement that they were to become the righteousness of God, that God is, in, in verse uh, 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's true of believers. So this isn't just talking about legal righteousness, like somehow you, once you're saved, you've become the righteousness of God. No, it must be talking about, since it's believers that are the object of this, that we are being made into the actual living righteousness of God. We become ambassadors for the God of the universe, sent to the universe, which he is seeking to reconcile completely to himself. Ephesians 1. All things are being brought into unity in Jesus Christ. Everything. Do you ever think to yourself, I want to share Jesus with people who don't know him, but I don't even know where to begin. Anyone ever thought that? I mean, I've thought that. Where do you start, right? If we can get clarity on what the gospel is and why we need it, it will truly simplify things. Sharing the gospel is similar to telling someone on November 6th, later this year, the morning after the election, who won the election. So-and-so is now our president, or so-and-so is still our president. I mean, basically how that conversation goes on the morning of November 6th, or maybe sometime in the next year after that, depending on how that goes how long it takes them to figure it out. But anyway, (laughs) hopefully sometime before January, at least we can have that conversation, right? Sharing the gospel is telling somebody who reigns. It's telling somebody who is the king. Jesus is God's promised good king, and he has come. He was put to death because both Jews and Gentiles, that's all of us, rejected him. But God raised him from the dead, and he now reigns at the Father's right hand, ruling over everything. And he calls you, indeed he summons you, to come into his good, peaceful kingdom. Even though we've spent our lives rebelling against the king, he offers amnesty. He is not holding your sins against you. Now, this simplicity allows us to listen to their story, their lives, to observe in order to see what, is it, what it is about the kingdom that will make a big difference to them now. And the kingdom covers everything. But if we listen to people, we try to understand their lives, we try to learn who they are, we'll find those ways that suddenly, oh, that's where the kingdom will make a difference in their life. So let me start there. Let me start right there. And the message itself shapes our approach. 
If the message is first, Jesus died for your sins, then we begin with, you're a sinner. Not great news. By the way, I think most people in some form or another realize that, and they're either trying to stuff that and not think about it, or they're just plagued by the guilt of it, so we probably don't need to start there. Now, I'm not saying it's not true. <laughs> A lot of true things I don't necessarily tell people the first time I talk to them about something, okay? If, if the message is, Jesus reigns as God's good promised king, the Christ, then we as ambassadors of that reconciliation might begin by looking for ways to demonstrate that reign. What are the characteristics of that reign? How is it that God is reconciling the world to himself? Well, he sets people free. He brings peace. He restores us to shalom, to a peace that grows out of wholeness. He comforts us. He delivers us. Now, how can I demonstrate as an ambassador that deliverance? You see, suddenly I stop asking questions like, now is our job to only give them the word, or are we supposed to give them deeds too? Okay, let's, what would that look like? I'm an ambassador of reconciliation, and God wants to restore you to peace. Now, I'm not going to have anything to do with that personally. I don't really care about that. I just want you to know the truth. What kind of message is that? What kind of messenger is that? That would be absurd. Suddenly, the focus is on Jesus and not on their sin, though we will be addressed ultimately. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't deal with their sin. But it will deal with their sin as God's kindness leads them to repentance, not as our sales pitch about how they are great sinners and in need of buying the solution that we are selling. It may lead them to ask, what must I do? Which we see in Scripture, but rarely in our more common presentations of the gospel. It also shapes our approach because suddenly God's message of reconciliation and good works don't seem worlds apart. Rather, good works begin to serve the purpose of the message, to reconcile people with God and restore them to His shalom. No one would believe that we want to set them free in the world, um, in the world to come if at the same time we take no interest in their being set free in this world. We yearn for the future reign of God where all is shalom. And where it will all be seen, it will all be tasted in life in the lives of those to whom we are ambassadors, but we yearn for it in such a way that we do everything we can to see it happen on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? If you want to do a deep dive into what living as ambassadors of reconciliation might look like, I'm going to recommend a book to you that I'll talk about it later in the year as well, but Rosario Butterfield's book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Highly recommend it. It'll change your world, it'll rock your world at least, and it'll be up to you to change it, but very, very good read. The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Rosario Butterfield. Um, it's, it's really radical Christian hospitality, uh, and it's one of the greatest ways to match our method to our message. Ma- match our method to our message. Um, one, one I, and, and I'm just I'm closing here. I'm going to just throw something up. I'm not going to spend much time on it. But there's a gospel presentation that's called Two Ways to Live. That I, I saw this 10 or 12 years ago at least, maybe longer. But it kind of drives at the point that, that they're capturing this idea that God made the world in the top left corner where God is king over humans. But the second one to the middle top, you know, humanity took that crown and put it on himself and rejected God as king, X'd it out. And, and, and so humanity lives under the judgment of God. But then comes Jesus. That's the J. He was a man who lived under God as king. And then Jesus is raised to the right hand of God, rules over everything. He is king. And when we're restored through him, we, that's that, that sharing in his glory, that small crown that we can have while he remains king. So you can see that whole thing just pictured right there. Everything I've said this morning, it's all right there. It's really simple. It's really clear. 
the danger, and I just want anyone to avoid, we don't approach people thinking, let me tell them all of this. We approach people trying to hear their life, to listen to them, to understand where they are, to, to prayerfully ask the Holy Spirit to guide us. Where is it in their life where the kingdom of God needs to come to bear? And then we, we approach that. This may help us know, how do I begin that part of the story? How do I, when I get there, it may be helpful to know where I might go later as well to, to complete the story. So, as long as we don't turn that into some formula that we, we bring everybody through from start to finish. Getting the message right is essential to getting our hope right, which shapes our cause. Why do we exist? What is our purpose? For what do we hope? All of those things are answered when we understand that the gospel is the announcement of the reign of Jesus Christ as king. And it calls us to a place in that kingdom and a functional role in it as ambassadors. As I began, we noted that if, if, our hopes, if we get our hopes right, we'll more likely get our fears right. And, and that's essential to knowing how we are to live. In, in some sense, to knowing who we are and what we are becoming, who we are becoming. Our, our hope is that the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, that's our hope, the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, the new Jerusalem, the capital city coming down out of heaven from God, on earth as it is in heaven, our yearning, our longing is for that kingdom to come. Now, as God answers our prayer by sending His Spirit with the powers of the age to come in order to demonstrate His kingdom and bring it to bear upon the powers of this age and fully one day to come. This, this gospel hope is not an otherworldly creation, is not important, pie-in-the-sky, head-in-the-sand kind of hope. It does indeed long for the fullness of the reign of Christ which will come, but it does so in a way that seeks to bring that redeeming power to bear upon the world today in our own self-sacrificial ways. God's reign does not only reach to us as individuals, He intends to reconcile Everything in heaven and on earth to himself. So this gospel matters for all of creation. It means that we have to have our heads out of the sand and fully engaged in the brokenness of this world. Because our king has us on a mission to address it and to reconcile it to God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for sending Jesus, who is now our good promised King, the Christ. Thank you for raising Him from the dead and seating Him at your right hand. And thank you that in Him we too have been raised to rule and reign with Him. Oh Lord, help us to grasp the gospel with great clarity. Help us to comprehend the gospel. And Lord, most importantly, help us to let it saturate us in how we live. In Jesus' name, amen.